Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of the podcast. I'm Dan Hummel, your host. Last episode, we heard from Christine Jeske, an anthropologist studying work and vocation in South Africa. And for this episode, we're going to stay in the continent of Africa, but move north and west to the country of Ghana and into the past, about 150 years. And joining me to situate ourselves, because I know that's a quite a, a long journey, is Eric Carlson, Upper House's Fellows Program Director and a historian himself. We're historian-heavy on this episode, as you'll hear, but with good reason. Eric hosted this interview with Paul Grant and is here to share a bit about it before we jump in. Hi, Eric. Hi, Dan. So first of all, this is your first time on the podcast, so welcome. Thank you. Tell us a bit about who you are and what you do here at Upper House. Well, um, here I wear a couple of different hats uh, here at Upper House and in the community. Uh, here at Upper House, the main thing I do is work with the Fellows Program, which you mentioned, which is a program uh, that we have for UW-Madison students, both uh, grad students and undergrads, that, uh, that's focused on helping them integrate their faith with their academic studies and their vocations during this very formative period of their lives. And also for the past decade, I've served as a lecturer in history and religious studies at uh, UW-Madison, where I teach a range of courses uh, in European history, especially the history of thought, so intellectual history, and, and religious history. Uh, and my own area of research uh, is in, uh, especially in 18th century Germany, and on, on a focus on the relationship uh, between the Enlightenment and Protestant theology and, and religious thinking. Uh, in that period. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, and it's been a joy uh, working with you on the Fellows Program. Likewise. Really exciting stuff. Uh, and your your focus on the Enlightenment and Christianity. Interesting enough, even though we're in this conversation going to be in a different continent um, and a different time period, some of those themes, those broader themes, uh, connect with Paul's work as well, which is, a, which is very interesting. So if you can, just uh, tell us a bit about Paul, uh, Paul Grant, who you talked to for this conversation. Yeah, well, uh, I've known Paul for many years. Uh, in fact, we've worked together in the classroom at uh, UW on many occasions. Uh, Paul is currently a lecturer in history at the, at the university as well, uh, and he earned his Ph.D. there uh, in African and European history. Um, and so the book that we're discussing on this podcast grew out of uh, the research that he started when he was a graduate student here. Uh, Paul has an interesting and wide-ranging background. He is uh, originally, he was, um, he was born in the States, but grew up in Switzerland and then moved back to the States, moved to Wisconsin for college, and he did his undergrad here at UW as well. Um, before becoming an historian, Paul spent 10 years working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as a writer and a web developer. And uh, in fact, he wrote his first book during that time, a book called Blessed Are the Uncool, which was published by InterVarsity Press. Um, so Paul uh, uh, is a longtime Madisonian. He lives here uh, with his wife and three children, uh, and we're grateful that he's part of our community. Yeah, and he, that background of him growing up in Switzerland, I believe that was because he was a missionary kid. That's right. Uh, which is a, a background I share with Paul as well. So lots of interesting connections. So the conversation we're going to have now is about Paul's most recent book, as you mentioned. What's the title of that book? Well, the title is Healing and Power in Ghana, Early Indigenous Expressions of Christianity. And it was published last fall, the fall of 2020, uh, with Baylor University Press. Right. So this conversation and the book will likely introduce a lot of new concepts and portrayals of Christianity to our listeners who, uh, I imagine, like me, are mostly familiar with uh, Western expressions of Christianity. So now that you've had the conversation that we're going to jump into here in just a minute, what are some of the things that stood out to you uh, about talking to Paul? 
Well, yeah, this this is a really remarkable book in several ways, and I think it will make uh, make big waves uh, in the field of, of uh, African history and the history of Christianity in Africa. So Paul is dealing in this book with the early history of European Protestant missions. So these are pre-colonial missions in the early and mid-19th century uh, to a region of the world in West Africa where Christianity has really exploded in the last century. And what Paul is doing is exploring how it was that the Ghanaians heard the message, the Christian message from the missionaries, and then they made it their own. And in the process of doing that, they also changed the way that the missionaries understood the Christian message. So it's a really a, a remarkable story. Um, and uh, the enormous growth of Christianity in West Africa in relatively recent times, which is, which is a, a major phenomenon, um, it has typically in the past been linked to the explosion of Pentecostalism, Pente- Pentecostal forms of Christianity in the 20th century. And one of the really interesting things that Paul does and, and that his book shows is that even before then, even before the coming of uh, Pentecostalism as a Western import, the Ghanaians had developed a form of Christianity that in many ways anticipated uh, it and paved the way for Pentecostalism. And that was especially by emphasizing healing and emphasizing uh, spiritual power. So even though the story uh, that Paul's book deals with is set in the 19th century, there are lots of really interesting connections to things that are happening uh, in West Africa today. Yeah, and we hear so much about the growth of the church in the global south, and uh, there's a lot of really good research and journalism on sort of the current state of that or the recent history of that. And it sounds like Paul's giving us just a very long history, probably longer than most people uh, appreciate for that growth uh, and for how to maybe even rethink um, 20th century Pentecostalism. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he really does set it in, in a really a long-term context. Yeah, that's great. So thanks, Eric. Uh, looking forward to, to sharing this conversation with our audience. Uh, last thing I'll, I'll just mention on this is we really do prize here at Upper House trying to elevate local voices, people who are experts uh, in fields uh, working at the university or in associated organizations, um, who are in our community. So uh, that is who Paul is. Christine from last episode is another one that uh, works here or lives here in Madison. Uh, so we'll do this as much as we can, uh, raise local voices uh, to our community. So finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, please help us out by rating us five stars on iTunes or Stitcher or your other favorite podcast app or by sharing with a friend. And you can also let us know how you like this episode by emailing podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. So with that, here's an Upwards conversation with Eric Carlson and Paul Grant. It's great to have you with us uh, today, Paul. Um, And I thought we could start by talking a little bit about your own background and how it was that you came to be an historian, somebody who uh, researches, writes, and teaches about history. Is history something that you've had an interest in ever since your childhood or something that you came to be interested in later on in life? Or uh, how did you come to be where you are now? Yeah, well, I love history and have for a long time, but I could have been something else that's closely related, like a geographer or an anthropologist. The, the, what holds it all together is that I'm interested in people. I fell in love with history back in high school, thanks to a good teacher. And I always think about this because so many of my students are freshmen and they hate history and they only show up in my classes because they have to. And they, the reason they hate history is because they found their high school history classes so boring. And that's just a shame to me because there's nothing more exciting than people and their stories. So I fell in love with history uh, because of just learning to love sto- stories and learning to love people. Did you fall in love with African history right from the get-go, or was was your your interest in African history something that developed uh, later on? Well, let me rewind a little bit here. Um, although I'm an American by birth, I grew up in Switzerland, where my parents served as missionaries, most working among international students. This was in the 18, uh, 1980s and 1990s, and so what I had the privilege growing up of seeing the collapse of socialism in Eastern Europe, and around that time, nearly every month, they were printing new world maps. So I saw I felt like in those days, just like today, in the year 2021, 2020, you had the sense that something big and important is happening 
right before your eyes. I, I remember getting this uh, shortwave radio. I think my dad found it in some used store, and I was able to listen in on on gunfire in Romania as their dictator Ceausescu fell. And then later, I was able to listen to celebrations in South Africa as they let this peacemaker out of prison. And so I had the sense that. So I was always interested that in the the, pre, the times, and so then I ultimately I majored in history in college. But then after college, I took a job working for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA, uh, where I had the privilege of corresponding with and interviewing a lot of times Christian leaders from all over the world, from Uruguay and from from Uganda and Sri Lanka and so on. And so for ten years, I was doing that, and I got a real tangible sense of how big, but also how dynamic and innovative uh, Christianity was beyond my little uh, section of the world. I didn't know about Africa at first. I didn't have a background with Africa. I was found myself in this job and I had a cubicle and I decorated it with getting a map and I found I plucked one off a shelf and it was Africa. And so then whenever I was bored at work, I would spin around and I'd look at this map and I started to develop an interest. I started to develop a curiosity. Oh, what's this country? I'd never heard of this country. And so so I didn't have not necessarily an organic connection at that level. But years later, when I was uh, beginning to work on my PhD in history, I took a graduate seminar on methods in African history. And it was the methods that hooked me. They found ways of, of asking questions about what Africans are actually doing. So that was, that's what, it was about the stories all along and about lo- finding new ways to listen to the stories. You mentioned that you had some experience working uh, with uh, college ministers yes. uh, before you went to graduate school in history. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your own religious background, your, maybe your own experience in the church. Uh, and how your own experience uh, in the church and in ministry shapes the kinds of questions that you ask uh, as a historian. All right. Yeah. So this this is um, sort of lifelong uh, process here. I was raised in a devoutly Christian home. But my parents didn't. They had met Jesus as young adults, and throughout their entire lives, and even down to the present day, they've always modeled for me the joy of discovery, of of joy of a journey. So faith for me has never been abstract, or faith for them has never been abstract or routine. So when it was time for me, as I was growing up as a teenager, as a young adult, to make uh, my faith my own, it was not a struggle uh, to to sort of uh, find in uh, my my. Uh, walk in faith as something of, of real genuine value of, of, of beauty. Um, there is um, sort of, when I went to college, I was, so I said I'd grown up in Switzerland and I, I went to college sort of at basically a fresh off the boat missionary kid. And I was basically a misfit. And, and as so many, so many uh, missionary kids seem to be, it holds also for kids who grew up in sort of international diplomatic homes and business communities and so on. But I was kind of a misfit around and I was lost, um, not, not sort of in the, um, in a, a tragic necessarily way, but I didn't find a home. And I ultimately one day found myself in what was then a, a black church in the Pentecostal tradition. Right. Um, and I was neither uh, Pentecostal nor African-American, but I immediately found felt at home. Now, one thing led to another and I became a member and then eventually uh, sort of a core member. And that was 25 years ago and I'm still there. So what this means then I'm 45, that means that more than half of my life has been spent as a white person in a black church environment under African-American leadership, under African-American teaching. And so in one sense, I'm a product of uh, the church that I grew up in. And in another sense, I'm a product of the black church, even if it wasn't where I came from originally. And even if even in that church, I've always been a little bit of an oddball. I should add that basically any black church you go to in the United States is going to have that white family there. Well, we're basically that <laughs> white family. So. As a white person in a black church, I've been privileged to hear stories and testimonies and life stories from people who had very different experiences than mine and to hear the Bible preached and sung through different perspectives than mine, which is to say that we share a common faith and we worship the same God, but what got us to that point is heavily shaped not only by American history, but by something kind of deeper. And eventually I realized that that something is not just the sort of the... 
the tragic American story, but there's also an unbroken African cultural inheritance in the black church. And it's manifest in some of the questions people ask about life and the ways we make friends and family and music and food and even the ways we respond to right and wrong. So then when I began studying African history and especially African religious history, it was in part coming from a place of needing to know about what had become my own adopted heritage. So to the extent that my own faith, which came through my parents from a kind of an American and European experience, and that my own story as an as a young adult had become uh, sort of being adopted into an, uh, an African-American cultural and religious inheritance, I was uh, the study of Amer- African religious history helped me connect dots that I had needed to understand. So the kinds of questions that you ask as an historian sound like they're very much uh, a a rise out of your own experience in the church and specifically uh, being in the African-American church. Yes, yes, that, that that's the case. Add here, if you go sort of tripwires in, in our American culture wars that we have, we, we talk about cultural appropriation, we talk about minstrelry or blackface or what have you, and there's you're always running into this this story of, of sort of white Americans to either trying to take something that, that was created by people who are not like them and make it their own and so on. And some a, a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of these people come and go actually over the years. Uh, a lot of times, the, the tragic thing is that, that with cultural appropriation is that you don't necessarily need to pretend anything because the black church in the United States has always had open doors. And this I just kind of at the risk of, of detour here, go back to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech from a half century ago. At the very concluding words, King says, you know, we'll, we'll reach this point when all of God's children, black men and white, white men and so on and so on, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. What King is doing here, this is almost always missed. And when I look at, at, at sort of the way public schools have Martin Luther King Day celebrations and so on, what they're looking, they say, they get to the point where they say, oh, all the, the white children and the black children will hold hands. Uh, but what they don't catch is the next line where he says that there's not, the king isn't knocking at the door asking to be let in. Rather, what you have is a standing invitation. He's saying, we... King is saying, we in the black church, we the heirs of the old Negro spiritual are inviting you who are not heirs. We're inviting you to come in and sing the same song that we've been singing all along. So if you wonder how reconciliation can happen in the world, there's an answer. Uh, it doesn't have to go into the lines of, of questions of, of ownership because it's it's reconciliation, it's invitation and joining. Thank you. That, that's really helpful in, in- trying to put uh, this book uh, that you that we're talking about today uh, a little bit into context. Let's turn and uh, think a little bit about uh, about this book, Healing uh, and Power in Ghana, Early Indigenous Expressions of Christianity. What if you could tell us a little bit about um, how you came to write this book uh, about Christianity in the Gold Coast or what's now Ghana in the 19th century? Just as a little bit of, of a context here, I once upon a time did not even know where Ghana was, so I, just a little bit of context. Ghana is a country touching the Atlantic Ocean in West Africa, and West Africa along the coast from the Ivory Coast to Cameroon, and you pass through Ghana and Nigeria. Today, this is kind of this, this belt there along the Atlantic Coast is one of the centers of world Christianity, and so you walk the streets of nearly any city or village, and you're going to meet a, a dynamic field of diverse Christian expressions, Christians from all denominations and walks of life. Now, numerically speaking, this is a big change. This is a big change, uh, one of the bigger changes in the last uh, several centuries of Christian history. And But most of this change has taken place in the last 50 years. So we're living through one of the main, uh, one of the big turning points, at least in the last several hundred years. Christianity is quite old in Ghana. It, it has arrived, it arrived centuries ago in the form of Portuguese sailors. But even... For centuries, Christianity was mostly a European religion. All right, it was there. The, people were, were aware of it, but it was mostly oh, it's the what the Europeans do. So even as late as around the 1960s, when these countries started to get their independence from European colonial rule, relatively few 
uh, West Africans were Christians, at least as a percentage of the population, there was a stable minority. And if you look at the history books that had been written around that period, the conventional wisdom is that uh, Christianity is an essentially European religion. And the idea is that once the Europeans go away, Christianity will as well. But in fact, the opposite happened once the Europeans went away, once colonialism ended, then Christianity started to take off. It's almost as if Christianity had been slandered by colonialism but that once colonialism went away, Africans felt that they could finally reformulate this faith without its European cultural baggage. While my book is set 150 years ago, but with an eye towards the present day, basically I wanted to look at the ways the pioneering generations of Ghanaians began the process of making what was originally an Asian religion, but had come to them as a European religion, and now they're making it their own African religion. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project? The project began as I was had an assi- assignment in graduate school, and I was trying to look up something, and I found a set of archival documents, and I was able to, these, these nice crinkly yellow pages, and they turned out to be annual reports from this mission agency, and I didn't know anything about any of it, but there was something magical about touching the old paper, and I started to see some names in there, and then I'd look at other ones, and I'd see new na- this, the same names over and over again, and I started to te- just... It- my faculties of imagination, trying to imagine the lives of these people. It it began actually with a a question of uh, a a biographical one. There was one little individual who only shows up as a line item and he didn't actually really make it into the book, but I had, um, but when I started, I would wanted to find out about this man because he seemed, the little pieces I found of him here and there seemed so fascinating and I wanted to know more. So essentially this quest, the, 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 or the, the genesis of this book was a question about a person and and not so much a big ideological change but who is this person and what can I and and the the challenge of of cobbling together a life story from these little shards of information here and there uh, that that's what attracted me to it it was like finding a needle in a haystack so the the book that we have now or that you that you, that you um, ended up writing uh, has a, a fairly close connection to the dissertation that you wrote at the UW-Madison? It originated with UW-Madison. I, I finished my dissertation basically three years before I finished this book. So there's a lot of overlap, but on the other hand, I had changed my mind a lot of other times. The Actually, the dissertation had a lot more of a focus on the missionaries. And as I went on over time, it was too broad in scope, so I needed to narrow it down, but also develop it out a little bit. And I found that the the things that were really interesting to me were the stories of the the Africans more than the missionaries themselves. And what I ended up writing about, the, to the extent that the missionaries feature in here, it's more about the ways that the I want to put the initiative, the agency in the hands of the Africans in this story and find ways that they are reaching out, but also folding the missionaries in sometimes with the missionaries active participation and sometimes against their own awareness. This is sort of forks away from my dissertation and in that way that I wanted to put a little bit more on the African hands and, and, and a little bit more here, bringing a little bit more of their stories to the front. The place I began work was a very special place. Ghana in the 19th century was the theater of a dramatic set of collisions between superpowers. You've got the British coming north from the coast, and you've got the big regional superpower, the Ashanti Empire, and these two places were coming into collision, and they fought a number of of spectacular wars, uh, just wild military history. It's it's, it's pretty exciting on on its own terms there. There was a small little mountain kingdom called Aquapem, which was very poor and remote. It was a multi-ethnic kingdom that was wedged between these two superpowers. So Aquapem was multi-ethnic in part because it was a small, the small kingdom was a destination for hundreds and ultimately thousands of refugees fleeing the wars between the British and the Ashantis. Essentially, they were taking shelter in a remote area to, to escape uh, dislocation. Now, it just so happened that as people were fleeing from the, the, these wars, they fled into this mountain kingdom, and there were some German missionaries there. And these men and women were also some very special people. You see, most of the missionaries in the Gold Coast at this time 
were British and they were connected with the imperial powers or the trading companies in some way or another. Um, they were world traveling types. They, 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 they were maybe upper class and so on. But these German missionaries, on the other hand, were small village people from poor backcountry places in Germany and Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland is, you know, a rich country in this today, but it was a poor country back in those days. They were only getting their railroad lines and so on. And these, these missionaries, they knew they were village people and they knew about crops and they knew about cattle. And many of them had no problem at all becoming part of daily life in a small country, a small town in the country. So country people understanding one another. So you have these two situations happening at the same time. You have this rather unique set of missionaries, foreigners, who were basically in the process of going native to an extent that very few European missionaries did. And they were really able to learn and listen to the locals and to know their languages and eat their foods and sing their songs and tell their jokes and so on. They had their, they went, they, they saw local doctors when they were sick, they had their babies delivered by local doctors and so on. Unlike most of the other missionaries had their own specialist doctors. All right. So these people really understood the locals. And at the same time, you have all these refugees coming in from other places and these people needed shelter and they needed a home. And so this is the dramatic and dynamic, unpredictable setting where this religious breakthrough takes place. It would be helpful if we could Situate your work within the wider field of African history and the study of world Christianity. I wonder if you could give us a sense about what, how it fits in. What are the big questions that you're asking in this book? So this is a really fascinating time to do African history. Uh, and it's a fascinating time to do the study of world Christianity. You have somewhat of a generational change going on, not, not necessarily in the sense the, of overthrowing old ideas, but the sheer strength in numbers, but also the sheer creativity of ideas coming from new corners of the Christian world, from East Asia, South Asia, East, South, and West Africa, and so on. Uh, there's no longer necessarily a center of Christianity. You, you, you don't go to, you know, Princeton, New Jersey as the center or whatever else. You've got more of a polycentric uh, field of, of innovation. And so when you start to, you do find ways when these scholars can come together and the, just the, the sheer dynamism of new ideas, not only theological ideas about the present, but also historical ideas about how we do history. One of the things that is fascinating when you go, on the other hand, to, to fields like the study of Africa you will find just a general recognition that any accounting for the African past or present must necessarily involve a heavy dose of religious and cross-cultural encounter. You don't necessarily see that in, in more of the European history fields. And so this is a, a kind of an, intri- uh, an exciting time to be, to be doing work here. There is a tendency uh, on the one hand to start telling the story much later than we should. So you've got this post-colonial growth curve where, where Christianity is a small, a small minority religion in West Africa, and it really takes off in the 1960s, 1970s, and above all in this sort of Pentecostal uh, incarnation of Christianity. And so a lot of the histories that you see really take the story from there. And I'm saying you need to go back at least a century further back to, first of all, asking why did Christianity is not new in this area, but why did people find it irrelevant for so many centuries? That helps to, you need to understand why Christianity was irrelevant before you can look at why people suddenly at certain sort of punctuated points one of them in my book in the 1860s, but also in the 1960s. Why did people suddenly find Christianity relevant when for centuries they had not? One of the things that people, I think, often assume about Christian missions and the history of Christian missions is that it's really a, mainly a one-way story. You have Western missionaries. They bring a version uh, of the Christian message, and then you have target communities that basically adopt something that's very close to the message that they're bringing. And I think this is an idea that you challenge uh, pretty strongly in your book. What's wrong with that idea? And how does the example uh, that we see in the Gold Coast and Ghana uh, give a very different picture of that process? Many of the missionaries had forgotten that the story that they were telling was not originally theirs. 
they were heirs of several centuries of Christian encounter in Europe. So they could go back, they could grow up in some small town in Germany and look around and that's this church that they're seeing may have been a thousand years old. Same with Britain, same with France. When the missionaries, when these German missionaries first showed up in Aquapem, they started drawing distinctions between themselves and the indigenous shrine priests for many years. But they attracted nobody for years, no converts at all. And then years later, there were a few converts, and then there was a trickle, and that became a flood at a certain point in this refugee crisis. The missionaries doing anything different. They had been there for many years, attracting no interest, and then suddenly the Africans show some interest. What's happening is that the Africans are observing, they're listening, but they don't find what the missionaries are doing relevant except when they do. And so the, the, the change is a change in a, an Africans rethinking what the missionaries are doing. The missionaries come in announcing what they think is a compelling message. God is here to forgive your sins. Now, the word sin does not really have a cognate here in the language they were speaking. It's, it's, it's bene, right? It's in the Chi language. Now, the word bene is basically the same word as the word for evil, all right, so the missionaries are essentially saying, God will forgive you from your evil, but the locals are saying, be that as it may, what I really need is protection from evil. What these Africans eventually concluded is that, I don't know what these missionaries are saying, but that the, the message that the missionaries have is a message, a word of protection from evil. So at this point of this refugee crisis, you'll find hundreds of people begin camping adjacent to missionary chapels. And they had named these chapels houses of prayer in their own language. And they had named the missionaries shrine priests without the missionaries knowing anything about it. So essentially these people had been observing them for decades, looking for some way that these strange European people might be somehow useful to them. They eventually concluded that the message could be useful if they could make it about healing and power. These are words that are true. These are words that you can read straight out of the Bible. But the missionaries are reading the same Bible, but they're seeing different things there. The real dynamic part of this is as these people, these three different sets of people, the the people who are native, then you have these missionaries, and then you have the new coming refugees. And as they are listening to the same story and, and, and speaking it back and forth to one another, they're all starting to understand it in new ways. So it sounds like, to some degree at least, that the missionaries were bringing a message that, when heard in a certain way, was answering certain questions or solving certain problems uh, that the peoples um, in the Gold Coast had, questions they were asking, problems that needed to be solved. Is that right? That's, that's right. Um, they, but some of the needs that they had that they saw a potential answer for in Christianity were not necessarily on the agenda of the missionaries. And some of it has to go with those little bit more basic worldview questions. In the African, the West African sort of cosmology, relationships are of utmost importance, right? And so divisiveness between people is off and within families is felt to be a disease, a sickness. In fact, you will not find necessarily a a concrete uh, distinction between what we now call biomedical ailments and relational, broken relationships. But people experience them as as a continuum here. So you have uh, somebody who whose child is dying and whose husband is running away, and those are they're felt to be a sickness on both counts. So the missionaries are coming in and they're saying, God will forgive your sins, and there's, these people are saying, can he make my husband come back? And essentially, that's not actually a, a wrong question. Listening to this, this missionary message, they're saying, is this of any relevance to me? Is this of any relevance to my immediate pressing needs? So it's very much, <clears throat> much a dynamic back and forth between the missionaries uh, and the people who are receptive to their message, the, the, the form and the, the shape, the nature uh, of the kind of Christianity that gets adopted. The really interesting, that's right, and the really interesting stuff is when you can somehow piece together conversations, especially ones where people have known each other for many years. And that's where the archival part becomes interesting 
interesting because you can, if you follow individuals over many years, you can start, oh yeah, well these two people, these people fight all the time or these people don't. Uh, and, and you start to kind of piece together the actual relationship. You can start to, to kind of understand the, the, the dynamic in very intimate ways. You, we've already talked just a little bit about the missionaries who, who figure centrally in the story that you're telling. Uh, who were the missionaries? Uh, and what did you find especially interesting uh, about them? Uh, just to clarify, the people that I'm talking about here are mostly Germans from this Swiss mission agency called the Basel Mission, named after the city where the city is right on the Swiss and German frontier. Most of the the, the missionaries were from the German side of that border, but it was it's in that area in the near where the France, Germany, and Switzerland come together. Right? Who are these missionaries? They were what uh, they called themselves pietists. Um, they came out of a long tradition in European uh, Lutheran and Reformed uh, traditions of, of, of sort of um, per, a spiritual renewal within within their own traditions. They also came emerged at this moment when the city of Basel had been this scene in the Napoleonic Wars. The, the, the French had come in and had spent the summer of 1816 bombarding Basel, and they got rescued by these Russians. And these Russians had brought in these, these, um, these conscripted soldiers from Central Asia and these, these people who were uh, living in fear. This was also the, the summer without a summer where there, there had been crop failures all, all around, and so people were going hungry. And then they saw these Russians come in and, and they, these, 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 these Central Asian peoples, and they'd never seen anything like this. These people were, were Basel was not a world-class city. And so these people were basically exposed to the world. And so they, they it was not a necessarily, a, they didn't necessarily plan to go to Ghana or to go to the Gold Coast, but they had an early volunteer who was a Dane, and there was a Danish uh, outpost there. So one thing led to another, but they were, what got them there was a strong motivation and a strong willingness to suffer. They had they had a much greater sense uh, than many of the European missionaries on the coast of what it would cost for this work to be successful. And so these people went out into the forests, whereas most, and which were very dangerous, uh, disease-ridden places. It's, it, this is before you have vaccinations. And so um, of the first couple of generations of these missionaries, more than half of them died, right? The, the, the death rate of these missionaries far exceeds any of the other missionaries, and you, there's, most of these areas have huge graveyards where these missionaries are just dying, 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 and another flood. This is basically bio, uh, biological cannon fodder. These missionaries kept coming. They were also sick for much of their lives. One of the things that's fascinating, with fever, fever for months on end, um, and they, they'll talk about how they need, when they preach on Sunday and they need to hold themselves up on the lectern because they're going to be falling over. And there was an, uh, a British observer one time said, there are lots of these people, they, I th- they turned out to be in their 40s. I thought they were in their 60s because they were so beaten down, haggard, as Europeans did not have the immunity to the diseases. That's both a, a plus and a minus for the, the strength of their message since so many of the Africans are asking questions about healing and it's obvious that these missionaries are dying so what that that's a counterpoint to their own message but on the other hand the their fact that they were able to they're willing to to bring this it actually opened a door in people's minds that they're saying there is something here there is something here even if these people are not accessing the power there is some power to it so inevitably, as you do historical research, you encounter things that you don't expect to find. And I'm wondering, when you wrote this book, when you were conducting the research for it, did you come across something? Uh, did you encounter some something that led you to change your mind about anything, rethink the ideas or the questions that you were uh, bringing to the project? My biggest surprise was the ways and the depth to which the missionaries themselves were changing. My favorite example here, many of these missionaries died right away, but some of them lived for whoever knows what reasons, what you know, immune systems, but some of these missionaries lived for many, many years 
in there. And those are the ones who are really interesting. You watch them as they grow over many years. And you can see that what this fellow, Johannes Wiedemann, for instance, what he says when he is right off the boat in the 1840s, 1850s, and what he says at the end of his life is very different. Essentially, over many years, he has begun to think like one of the locals. So when he first comes in, he thinks that the indigenous priests are just are just charlatans. And then over several years later, he thinks he starts to see that they, there's an actual real spiritual world that they're involved with. So he thinks of them not as charlatans, but as rivals. And then later he starts to, as he's had for many, many years, he's had for much of his life, he's had people coming to him and saying, bring your spiritual power to bear. You have spiritual power bring it to bear. And so there's an example he has where there's there these people are doing these sacrifices at their laying of a foundation for a new house and he says, "Oh, this is this is falsehood. The, the only God brings real power." And so then they hand him the uh the, uh, the prayer item and say, "Okay, then you bring your God to this." Anyway, and he thinks that he thinks this is preposterous. But by the end of his career, there's the Ashanti army has camped out just at the base of the hills, and he goes and prays armies of heaven, uh, Lord Sabbath. He prays God's armies to come down, and sure enough, these army drives uh, runs away. And he says, the locals here, the indigenous people, have realized that the, our words are the words of power over life and death. So Wiedemann himself is changing. That's what I found most surprising here. This closely related part of the surprise is that the missionaries were changing, but that these changes were being buried by the home office. You see, the, while these missionaries are in the field, they're being changed. So the people in the home office are also being changed because they're living in the middle of the 19th century in Central Europe, which is anything but a static place. And so at the, over this time, the same years that Wiedemann is in calling down fire from heaven, Frederick Nietzsche is teaching philosophy about 200 yards away from the mission office. So you have this this this, this culture change in in the in town in Basel, and the missionary organization is getting a lot more. Uh, embarrassed by stories of the supernatural. They want to have stories of development and stories of sort of, oh, we have a new doctor, we have a new teacher. And what there's this... um, this one newsletter I found one time that was just so delightful. They say the see what one of the things is that the missionaries are writing these reports home and they're getting published in the newsletter. And for, for beginning parts of my research, I was going by these, these published newsletters and somewhere along the line, I, I looked up one of these new, the handwritten one. And I realized that there's lots of really juicy stuff in here. That's getting censored by the home office. So they'll say, Oh, we, um, we laid hands on somebody and cast a, a, a tuberculosis out of him, and uh, we bought a coffee making machine. And then the home, the, the published newsletter says, "News from Aquapam: They got a coffee making machine." Leaving aside the part that these guys healed somebody of tuberculosis. So, it, there, so I, as long as I was going by the published newsletters, I was missing the really craziest stories. So one of the stories that really stood out to me uh, was you, you tell about a uh, a child who had died and then was brought back to life by an indigenous evangelist uh, uh, and and how differently that account uh, and the the story of this this uh, child being brought back to life was received by the Ghanaian Christians and by the German missionaries. So I wonder. Uh, to what extent you think that this speaks to a, a a deeper difference that you might find between how European Protestants and West African Christians understand the nature or the power of Christianity and its relationship to the supernatural? Let me answer that one sort of in a backwards way. If you look in sort of publications, theological publications in the present day. If you look at, go to a seminary in this area and you look at sort of, their, they have might have a bookshelf full of dissertations that have been written. You will see dissertations written, drawn, over, drawn overwhelmingly on the Old Testament, right? So what's happening here is that in the 21st century, African Christians from all corners of the continent 
are seeing in the Hebrew Old Testament analogous uh, an analogous experience to their own. All right, so they are um, they are looking and re- reading their experiences out of there. And the one of the overarching themes that you'll see in contemporary world Christianity is that we needed to discover this on our own because we, some of our our teachers at our own seminaries had gotten their training in American and European seminaries, and they, we didn't learn anything about healing and power. We only learned about things like hermeneutical debates. We didn't learn anything about poverty, but we did learn a lot about pottery. Was there? There was this famous example that that somebody had. Now. Going backwards from there, you see the same story back in the 19th century, which is to say that the, the, the Bible is, is, is being translated into the local language, into the language of Chi, and the, the indigenous Christians, but also the, indigenous, the first generation of, of indigenous preachers, who the missionaries have given them the tools to do this. They've taught them how to read the scriptures, not only in their own language, but also to read the originals in Hebrew and Greek. And they're saying... I'm seeing something here that the missionaries that are not te- telling us about. It's not like they're trying. They, they, the story's incomplete. And so you'll see over and over again, you'll see the, these, these indigenous preachers, even back in the 1850s, saying, the prophet here, the prophet Elijah is calling down fire from heaven. This prophet here is calling down fire from, uh, or, or rain from heaven. Uh, this prophet here is laying hands on a baby and healing it. So why can't I do the same thing? The missionaries are never doing this type of thing, except maybe they're, they're do, doing at a, a much milder uh, level here. But if you look at reports that the indigenous preachers Right as they go on their circuit tours, they go preaching from village to village to the uh, you know various different um, refugee camps that they're finding hiding out in the in the in the rainforest, and they go and talk to these people and drive uh, out uh, you know they drive out diseases, they heal people, they they go and sort of <clears throat> demonstratively eat uh, taboo foods and so on like this and daring the gods to and angered spirits to confront them and they're basically initiating power encounters very much like the power encounters they're reading in the in the Hebrew Old Testaments the missionaries aren't doing anything of this so in this situation that you're telling here this is uh, this t- this takes place in in 1858 and um, it's in this village on an adjacent rev- a ridge. So the missionaries weren't there because you have to ha- actually hike several hours, go down a, a canyon and back up the other side. So the, the indigenous preacher was there by himself without missionary supervision. And this child dies and the local priests raise up a funeral and it, they're blaming it on, on, um, on the, the, this, this death on the intervention of an evil spirit or not an evil spirit, an angry spirit. They're blaming this this child's death, but then the mission the, the the indigenous preacher comes up and he prays and 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 that that this child will be brought back to life and he's brought back to life. Now this story is this foundational document in the church of that town to the present day. You can find it on their website. You can find it on um, in all of their documents. It's this this a seminal moment, the seed moment in their, their church. But the missionaries had been in that church, that town over and over again. They never had any success. Weeks after this, they go to that same village and they're saying, well, my goodness, there sure is a lot more interest in our street, street preaching than there ever has been. It's almost as if not only did they, it's, they, they didn't have eyes to see what the actual dynamic was going on, not only with the indigenous religions, but the ways that the indigenous Christians are reformulating this message to be a message much more equivalent to the spiritual ecosystem you read out of the out of the Bible. Yes, you you mentioned the Bible um, and um, and Bible the Bible translation how you interpret the Bible really plays a central role in your uh, in the story that you tell. And so I wonder if you could say a little more about why it was that Bible translation, Bible interpretation became such a key part of the story of the Ghanaians making Christianity their own. They have always had, throughout much of Africa, notions of a supreme God. In this area, the supreme God is called Onyame, the supreme God. And he's very equivalent in the way people think about it to the God the Father in the Christian sense. He's 
uh, the creator of the world, everything that has life comes from this and so on. An important distinction is that this God is distant, is removed, steps away from, he steps away from us. He created us and is just watching. We can't access him. So you, your only dealings are with sort of lesser gods or ancestors or things like that because God, God is, is so high and lofty that we have no dealings with him. In that sense, very early on in this story, both the locals and the missionaries realize that they're dealing with some uh, a cognate concept of God. And so when they translate the Bible, and when I say they, I'm talking about a team, a mixed team of both German and Ghanaians, by the way, translating the Bible, it's not very controversial to use the word Onyame in the Bible. So you're not, uh, you, this, is, this is in some parts of the world, this is a, this is a controversial decision. In, in, in some parts of the world, they'll, they'll, they, they don't like the name for the indigenous God, so they'll create a new one or use uh, you know, the, the Latin word Deus or something like that. Here, when they use the word Lord, they use the word Onyame. Now, the name of the Bible then is Anyamasem, which means Onyame's words. We have known God for way back when, but God has always been distant. But now God speaks. So there's this compelling moment, like, if God is actually speaking, wouldn't we want to know what he has to say? If God is actually speaking, isn't this relevant to us? So it's, it's, it's one of those this, these fresh eyes type of things. Um, I have a friend who I met who was, um, while I was in my field work, and he was from the far north of, of Ghana, a completely different ethnic group. His name was uh, Jonah, who's a, a pastor there. And a couple of years ago, he, they had uh, a, a long time uh, Bible translation project was concluded in, in, his, in his ethnic group in the far north of Ghana. And at the sort of sort of celebration ceremony of this new Bible translation, he said, long ago, God spoke to us through our ancestors, but now God speaks to us through these words. And I feel like that was that that really encapsulates just how exciting this moment this is. I take it for granted that there is a Bible and I, t- I sort of look at it for certain things, but I don't re- I rarely c- approach the Bible with the same type of awe and reverence that these people did who heard said we have been waiting for God to speak God has never spoken only the priests have spoken but now we can hear God's word so I think that when people then turn to the 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 Bible to hear what God's words are and they see stories that they understand that reflect their own experience. Um, it's really an electric moment and they, they're really, they insist on this, the relevance of these stories and the real exciting part is when others can hear it. So the missionaries can hear, oh my goodness, it was here all along, I never saw it. So earlier you mentioned that Christianity really has taken off in a big way in the last century, and especially in the last 50 years or so in West Africa, and primarily in a a Pentecostal form. And you're working now a century and a half ago and looking at how Christianity first became indigenized among the peoples that you look at in the Gold Coast. And so I'm wondering, um, you draw a connection between what happens in the 19th century, and particularly the, the mission that you're looking at in this book, and the, uh, the development of Pentecostalism in the 20th century. I wonder if you could explain uh, what that connection is that you see between those two different phenomena. Last year, I was giving a presentation on this in Ghana, and we started talking about it informally, and there was um, a banana that I, was, I saw at the back of the, the room. Now, bananas came from Southeast Asia originally, but they really have become a mainstay food in plantains in, in much of Africa. It's part of, you know, global change in goods. The idea that came to my mind as I'm standing there having this conversation, and I see this, this fruit that is kind of your main food that comes from Southeast Asia originally, was that an exotic plant can still be an exotic plant, but it can thrive if, in good soil. And that's kind of how I'm thinking about uh, Christianity in West Africa in the present day. 
Pentecostalism may or may not have been a foreign religion. Right, it's this this branch of Christianity. Uh, if you took it, take it look at sort of linear institutional history, it did in fact come to West Africa from overseas, from America, from Europe. None of the major leaders of West African Pentecostalism are are foreigners. They're all locals: Nigerians, Ghanaians, and Congolese elsewhere, and so and so on. Basically. It's an expression of Christianity that may have originally come from overseas, but it took root immediately and powerfully and dynamically because it scratched where it itches and it spoke to existing, not only existing needs, but existing ways of thinking about the world. What I'm arguing here is that regardless of where sort of institutional lineage of where Pentecostalism may have come from, you need, you can go back 150 years and see the exact same questions. That if you want to tell a story about the lineage of this, this growth curve in West Africa where Christianity really takes off with the pe- arrival of Pentecostalism in the 1960s and 70s, but if you look at the field itself, the spiritual soil, there was an, uh, a... a a cognate interest, and that even in the earliest days, the only Christians that they knew, that these people knew, were the foreigners. Even in those earliest days, the pump they were pumping the Bible for the same types of questions that in the 21st century the Pentecostals are asking those same questions. So, Paul, you write as an historian of Christianity who both... Uh, works in the academic community, asking and answering the kinds of questions uh, that scholars engage about the history of Africa, the history of Christianity in Africa, on the one hand. And then you're also a member of the church, and you are engaged with the questions uh, that uh, that Christians ask. And so um, as people read your book, and as Christians in particular read your book, uh, are there big takeaways uh, that you hope that they would gain Uh, from the story that you tell. One of the things that I find people always want, people always want some good news. And you don't don't have to go very far in history. One of the reasons people don't like the field of history is because it's one bad thing after another. They'll they'll say, you know, and you you don't have to be uh, dig very deep in the academic uh, research of, of history to find some abuse, some person doing something horrible to somebody else. You know, that's the way of life of, of war and abuse and violence and, 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 and disappointments. And it's a lot, it's not, it's as easy as pie to write a history of bad things and a history of people betraying one another. What's much harder because it's rarer is to tell a story of healing, a story of reconciliation, a story of people who are different being able to hear one another genuinely. And that's really exciting. And that's a word of hope, regardless of whether people are uh, believe that, that Christianity is true or not. Everyone wants to hear a story, uh, a word, a concrete example of where reconciliation Peace is possible in the world. People of very different types, and so many times in our own sort of culture wars in the academy, and people get angry about sort of representations and so on. What a wonderful story it is when you have people who are able to encounter one another across their differences, to hear one another, and to become essentially family to one another. And that's just a, a, a story that, 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 that grips my heart, and I want the story to be told more broadly. Paul, it's been great to have you with us uh, today. Uh, before we go, I wonder if you could tell us about what you're working on now. Do you have any next projects coming up? There was uh, a crazy story of a man who I met who died in the year 1905, and he just didn't fit in this story. I had to crop him out. So my, I've been one. I've in the meantime, I've been tracking him down. His name was Cornelius Quasi Badu, and I've been. He, there's no one I've ever met who is more fascinating than this guy. And I've been tracing him down for years. His archival trace. His, his life spanned from 
uh, Ghana to Angola, Nigeria, Congo. He spent most of his life. He went to college in Switzerland. He also lived in Germany. He traveled in England and the Netherlands. And this person was an eccentric. He didn't fit with anybody. He participated in the German conquest of Cameroon. He took place. He was a he got he was a missionary for a few years. Then he got kicked out of the mission for being um, insubordinate. He married three wives. He was an evangelistic preacher. This polygamist, gunslinging evangelist. I've never met anybody like him, and so I'm going to write a, bi- a biography of him. And I've been in conversation with his his great grandsons who live in Ghana, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So, but just basically, this this story I've just written, healing and power in Ghana, is a, is is this is kind of is a a story about a group of people, and this is a biography of one individual for whom the world wasn't even big enough. Fascinating. Well, we look forward to seeing that. Uh, Again, thanks so much for being with us today, Paul. Thank you, Eric. This is a lot of fun. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Baer, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.